0: Hello, hello, welcome to Sip and Learn. I'm your host, Courtney Murray, a top real estate broker here in Chicago. And for the past three years, I've been hosting monthly laid back events where we get together and talk about different real estate topics over some of our favorite drinks. I've been fortunate enough to bring Sip and Learn to hundreds of people in Chicago, but in this changing world, I thought it was time to bring the series to you. Sip and Learn started as a way to help people learn the adult things no one ever really teaches you, like how to buy your first place or how to buy an investment property. And for me, it's turned into so much more. Being able to help people achieve their goals, whether it be financial stability or finding that dream home, has been one of the best parts of my career. And giving you the tools and the education and seeing those light bulbs go off on your head, there's there's just really nothing like that. So I want to quickly say thank you so much for taking the time to be here. It really does mean a lot to me. Earlier this week, we had my managing broker Rick Sobin on the podcast, talking about everything from when we'll see good deals hit the market to who the next generation of brokers will be. So without further ado, here's Sip and Learn. Looking ahead. Welcome back to Sip and Learn. I'm Courtney Murray, and with me today is the lovely Joe Burke. Joe, how's it going today?
1: Going well, Courtney. How are you?
0: Today is pretty amazing. I'm super excited for today's episode. I've been looking forward to it all week. Our guest today is someone I really look up to. He knows everything about everything and is probably the most down-to-earth person I've ever met in my entire life, and he's someone we've heard from before. Rick Sovin, how are you?
1: Hey, very good. Thanks for having me on the show, Courtney. Appreciate
0: it. Oh my gosh. No, thank you. Um, I actually think about this all the time. I have no idea how you have enough hours in your day. If you're just tuning in, Rick Sobin is the managing broker of two at properties offices here in Chicago. He oversees at least, what, like 400 people between both locations. You take all of our phone calls, emails, complaints, requests, and I mean, shoot, just between us. Yesterday, we were on the phone, I think, like three times talking through deals, and I'm just one of many.
1: That's true, but when you love what you do, you certainly don't
0: mind. That's incredibly sweet. But, you know, you're steering the ship, and you're helping navigate us, and you're also a husband and a father to two teenagers. So I can't tell you enough how much we respect you, and I think I speak for the both of us. We're very grateful to have you on today.
1: I appreciate that. I was very calm until I heard you spell it all out. Now that my life is is in words, it's very, sounds very stressful.
0: I can only imagine how stressful it is, but you are very calm and collected all the time. And, you know, you're great.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Much appreciated. Glad to be working with you.
0: So it's funny. I don't think either of you remember this, but Rick, you actually introduced Joe and I. Do you guys remember that?
1: I do. It was a couple of years ago. Um, Rick's always been a big advocate for me uh, throughout my career. I've known Rick for the better part of to age ourselves 15 years probably. And a funny anecdote, we've both lived on the same block twice in the city of Chicago uh, without ever planning it that way. So uh, it's good to see Rick. Um, I consider him a friend and uh, maybe even a mentor at this level because we've known each other and worked together for so long. Well, I feel the same, Joan. Thank you. You know, one of my goals in life is to keep my life as stress-free and easy as possible. So when referring someone, it has to be someone at a very high level and someone good. So I don't have any issues doing that. So I always love throwing your name in the hat and was glad to uh, connect you with Cordy. I'm glad it worked out. Thank you, Rick.
0: Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I can't believe that was five years ago. It's a really long time to all have known each other. And we've been You know, not just colleagues, we've become friends, and I just really appreciate both of you, and you guys have helped me so much in my career, so, you know, can't thank both of you enough. But there's a lot I want to talk about today, and I want to start off with this Vice article everyone has sent me asking for my opinion, and I really want to pick both of your brains on this one. So, the title is, Sadly, the Pandemic Could Be Millennials' Best Chance to Buy a House the next couple of years could be a a once-in-a-lifetime chance to buy a first home for the lucky people who still have jobs. So obviously there's a lot going on in that title, but what do you guys think? You know, it's the age-old question. Is now a good time to buy?
1: You know, there's, there's a lot in that title for sure, and, you know, one of the biggest problems is trying to predict six months down the road or nine months down the road when we are in the middle of a playbook that has never been... Um, you know, executed before it, it's going to be hard to make accurate predictions. And I don't want to be overly optimistic and I don't want to be overly pessimistic. But the one thing I can tell you is I didn't expect the market to be behaving like it is already. So uh, we, we thought traffic would drop by 90% and in early, uh, early traffic, we saw it drop around 55%. Now I think maybe we're down around 35%. So it's already showing some signs of continued movement. But I think one of the things that's part of the puzzle that people aren't thinking about is we started seeing price reductions and a slowdown in the market in in the middle of 2018. And that went all the way through the end of 2019, price reduction, price reduction. So we were coming into 2020 already at a more affordable rate. And then when you added on lack of inventory on top of that, it's really actually propelling the market a little bit right now. So we're seeing the median price actually rise a little bit. Yeah, I agree with everything you're saying there, Rick. And my take on is it a good time for first-timers, I, I think that everything has lined up for them in terms of our um, 3% down programs for conforming still being available. We are still underwriting the 97% of the purchase price right now. And with a conforming loan amount at 510000 that means that you can get into a property... In the five hundred thirty thousand to five hundred forty thousand dollar range for you know three to five percent down, and while you you know you're exactly correct that we're seeing median prices rise a little bit, purchase power has never been greater when you can do that at an interest rate in the mid to low three percent range. So um, yes, I think it's an incredibly good time for you know first time buyers right now. Uh, aside from the pandemic, even though that's at the moment what's keeping rates where they're at. So well, another piece to that that, idea of is it a good time to buy or not if you're just looking at the idea of i might save five percent or ten percent by waiting till the fall that's one piece of it but when you're at a 3.125 percent interest rate you have to remember that the sooner you get down the amortization table meaning the more payments that you have made on your loan the more money per month that ends up going towards principal. So waiting a year or waiting two years to save a little bit of money actually does also cost you some money. So the, the actual whittling down the principal amount at 3.125%, that is the real hidden gem of millennials buying homes right now. They can actually pay it off much, much quicker. Totally agree, Rick. The other thing that we don't talk much about in our market, while everybody gets so focused on interest rates, mortgage insurance rates are also at all-time lows, and that's not something you generally read about. But you know, a couple of years ago, the mortgage insurance industry really changed. Um, they, they started calculating out minimum payments and the actual rates for those payments through algorithms rather than just uh, risk-based pricing. So it really drove um, a lot of new uh, competition in that market and it drove rates down considerably over the last couple of years. So not only are you borrowing money at all time lows, but you're also your mortgage insurance payment. Well, nobody loves the idea of paying mortgage insurance, better to be paying it at those all time lows. And with the market turning a little bit right now, you know, we could see those mortgage insurance rise over the next couple of years as those risk factors rise. So um, it, it's also, you know, keeping payments down for people. And the less we have to spend towards mortgage insurance, the more is going towards that principle as well.
0: So talking about competition over the past three or four weeks, it's just been for me and Rick, maybe you can speak more to this because you work with more brokers, but the multiple offer situation just been insane. Personally, last week, and it's the same story over and over again. First people in the property, first people to put in an offer still had eight offers. I've heard 13 offers. I've heard up to 19 offers. And I totally agree with you guys. We thought that, you know, maybe prices weren't going to hold on as, as well as they have, but they've really held on. And I, I think it's due to that. What are you guys seeing?
1: You know, there's a, there's a segment to that where there'll be a segment of the population that doesn't lose their job and they do have constant income. So when you have a group of people that are still going to be employed and still making a steady paycheck, but low inventory, I think that is what is driving these multiple offers right now. The fact that there's just not as many desirable properties in the market is is you're seeing these crazy situations. But I, I also want to say that You know, I want to steer people against making an emotional decision like that. Like, I just have to win this. I have to be the winner out of 15 people because you you still don't want to overpay. Um, So I do think if you're in a situation like that, working with someone like yourself, that's really going to keep people from overpaying on a property. It's still important.
0: Yeah. And that's probably one of the toughest parts of this is I feel so bad because I know that they're missing out by just a few thousand dollars, but I'm not confident that the place is going to appraise out. We don't know what's going to happen. And I feel terrible that they don't get it. But at the same time, I have to do my job for them. I don't want them to overpay either.
1: Yeah. I've been telling people that are asking about, you know, I'm doing a lot of pre-approvals right now. And that's very encouraging. Aside from the contracts, it's nice to see that people are coming out and they're looking you know, 30 days, 60 days, in some cases, six months and a year out. We're doing pre approvals right now at a rate I didn't expect a few weeks ago. Um, And when people ask me about this, I, I tell them it's flat out. There are currently more buyers right now than there are sellers. And that is keeping the market sort of propped up in terms of these prices. It will be interesting to see what happens in terms of, you know, I think we all expect sort of a late inventory push towards the end of this year, once we start to come out of this, it'll be interesting to see what that looks like, how many buyers are out there. I think that's really going to set the pace for 2021.
0: Well, isn't that so interesting too? So it's not just the people that were already thinking about buying and then the pandemic happened. I have clients that I've just left up on searches for the past year or a couple years and out of nowhere, out of the blue, oh, hey, can you tell me about this property? What's going on here? And it's like, oh, hey, hi, how are you? How's it going? You know, <laughs> so it's, it's not just the people that were already ready and needed to move. People are trying to get those deals themselves.
1: Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, this whole pandemic has never made it more clear how important it is to really, really love where you're living. And now people are really looking at the way they're using their space. They're looking at the way they want to continue to use their space. And they're willing to now make sacrifices in other areas of their life to have a better place to live. You know, maybe the Lamborghini wasn't as important as I thought it was. Well, I also think it speaks to just how digital we've become. I, I mean, imagine, you know, we, we all point to um, the recession 10 years ago as, the, you know, what we kind of equalize this to or we try to compare it to. But 10 years ago, we weren't stuck in our homes during, you know, the, the financial crisis. This time we're literally stuck in our homes, but we've got all of these great tools to look at property. And as you guys always say, the first uh, viewing of a property never happens in the property itself. It happens online. Well, has it ever been more fun to go through the real estate sites and look at listings? If you can't, you know, you kind of dream about what's out there. I I can tell you I have a number of searches set up in Door County right now for that summer home I can't afford. And man, it's fun to look at.
0: You're totally right. There's definitely people that are enjoying being able to, now they're able to tour homes because now it's not just the photos, it's the virtual tours, it's the videos, it's brokers are finally starting to catch up to things that they should have already been doing. And it's giving buyers more power, which they haven't had in a really long time. And I think that's just, you know, that's amazing for them. And I myself, you know, I'm always on my computer looking through properties, but I still have some of my own clients. They're catching stuff even before me sometimes because that's all they're doing. They're just sitting online finding properties. And not all my clients are like that, but some of them are really enjoying it and they're getting ideas and this, that and the other. So it's interesting to see how it's changed so much, but not at the same time.
1: You, you had mentioned that brokers are finally doing things they should have been doing, and I, I thought that was ironic. Do you mean like you have been doing for the last three years that everyone should have been doing?
0: Possibly.
1: One thing I wanted to add on to what you were talking about, buyers you know, viewing properties online, when buyers start looking at Matterport tours and Real Vision tours, these different companies that do these different sort of videos, they actually become very good at visualizing the space. So they're they're learning as as much as we are how to do that first showing and how to navigate that. And we're seeing a lot of that right now and the buyers are actually getting very good at it and they don't need to spend as much time in the in the space because they've already have a good feeling of how it's gonna live.
0: Yeah, when we're doing in person showings these days, it's not to look at oh the size of things. It's really what's the condition? And those are things it's it's hard to tell virtually, but yeah, I mean we're going into single family homes and what used to take maybe an hour, maybe 15, 30 minutes max, it's it's so efficient. So going back to deals, um, the article talks about foreclosures and that's something everyone wants to talk about right now. I have a lot of people reaching out to me, oh, you know, are we going to see deals later this year? What's going to happen with that? I think not everyone understands the foreclosure process. So could you guys kind of talk about that?
1: So that's an interesting uh, thought process. And, and my response is been if you're going to do that, then you might as well sign your lease and wait another year, year and a half, maybe even longer. Um, we don't know what that's going to look like. And the foreclosure process can be six months or a year long after people stop making their payments for many, many months. Uh, and the same thing goes for any short fills that we see out there. 45 days ago, we were in one of the healthiest real estate markets we'd ever been in. We've only had two mortgage payments maybe since this crisis started we're talking a long way out before we get to a point where there's going to be any actual foreclosure or, you know, short sale properties that are out there. And the other thing that is, and I think Rick will probably speak to this as well, is that that REO market will never look the same as it did last, you know, 10 years ago. Mortgage companies, they have so much more in terms of data this time around. They are going to price those properties where they're going to price them at. So, The idea that suddenly I'm going to get something below market is—it's just flat out not going to happen. Uh, You're not going to see properties that are just listed by banks below market to to drop that real estate. They're going to sell them at market, whether market is today's market or 12 months from now or 24 months from now. um, You're not going to see suddenly deals flooding the market. I don't think. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, you have to start with the with the first basic difference, which is we were so overbuilt. There were there were. There were, you know, 30, 40 unit condo buildings empty when when the crash happened. So there were so many more units and you couldn't give properties away. Like you literally couldn't price them low enough to find someone to buy them because there were no buyers. There were just too many properties. And that's what really drove those values down so low. Banks had zero processes how to deal with foreclosures. So they were selling properties at steep discounts and some people got great deals in nine and ten. But now not only do we not have this, you know, giant pile of inventory, we actually have such a little inventory and we're keeping people in their properties longer. So I know that we're doing four, six months of forbearance right now, but is that going to end up is there going to be another new program in six months? Is there going to be another new program in a year? We're obviously making very sturdy efforts to keep people in their homes. So that means they might not even go into foreclosure for a year. And then Joe's exactly right. It might take two years to get them to get the home sellable. And at that point, someone has lived in a home that they really couldn't afford to upkeep for three years. And now the condition of the home is not going to be what you want it to be in. Plus, the bank is going to send out an agent. To compare it against a similar unit that is in decent shape, and they're barely going to discount it, and they're not going to get the deal that buyers think they're going to get like happened in 9 and 10. So expectation-wise, I would tell your people that there's just what two wildly different REO markets and not to expect the same results.
0: Well and let's just talk about even the foreclosure process. So you have the forbearance so people are getting, you know, 4 to 6 months of relief like you said from that. Maybe there's another program eventually. So then you're extending out that timeline further. Then with foreclosures, you have to be in default. It takes time.
1: When you're making your mortgage payments and then you stop making your mortgage payments, the the goal of the bank or the servicer is not to just remove you from your home.
0: They they want to
1: do everything they can to keep you in your home and to catch you up with your payments. And that's where you know, take aside the pandemic here. That's where forbearance comes from. Um, It's not in a bank's best interest to foreclose on property owners. It's just not. It's expensive. Um, It displaces people. The properties generally do fall into disrepair during the process. It, It is a risky proposition for the bank as well as it is for the buyer or the borrower. So, once you stop making payments, generally there's a time frame and it's allowed during your note that you sign, your note mortgage, that allows you to catch up with and accelerate your payment um, up until the last minute. And it's usually up to about six months. Even after that six month period is up and the foreclosure process starts, that's a court process. Foreclosure is a court proceeding. So you go to court before that foreclosure is finalized and then you get the sheriff's notice asking you to leave your home. So, and any number of things can even extend that timeline. There, most times what I've seen is that people will try to catch up with their mortgage at some point, will you know, we'll go into a payment program. And when you do that, you extend that date out. So, you know, there's no fast process for a foreclosure. Uh, generally, what I see is if you stop making your payments and you aren't in a position to short sell your property, it can go six months to a year to even a year and a half before that property... Becomes what they call an REO or real estate owned property by the bank. So, um, you know, you're looking at, you know, today if people stop making the mortgage payments and aren't taking advantage of the forbearance process, and a bank is going to push you to take advantage of that forbearance process to begin with, we're looking at 18 months, maybe even 24 months. You're looking at a 20, end of 2021, end of, you know, beginning 2022 before any REO hits, you know, the market or the street per se. Based on this timing in this pandemic, I would say, it takes a lot of time. And there's also investors that come in and buy bulk foreclosures. They'll buy a hundred of them. They'll buy 150 of them. It doesn't mean because a property goes on, it goes into foreclosure that it's ever going to hit the market. As a matter of fact, I would say, you know, 50% of them don't hit the market.
0: Well, and then let's look at history. After the 2008-2009 crash, it took about four years for those values to drop to their lowest. That was, what, in like 2012? So having that mindset of, oh, I'm going to find a deal today or in the next six months, you know, that that's not what we saw before. I don't think we anticipate seeing that now. Rick, what do you think?
1: Well, the other biggest problem with the idea of foreclosures are in 9 and 10, people were buying places with zero down and no income verification. Loans were... Well, it was, you know, fill out these two pages and you're going to be a property owner. Well, now the majority of properties have 20% equity in them. You know, a lot of people are putting 20% down. So if property values fall 5%, 10%, 15%. They're still, they're still above water. They can still sell their property. So we're, we're nowhere near to be anywhere in the shape we were in for foreclosures from, from the last time. Yeah, I don't think we're going to see, especially over the next 12 months, that values just plummet. Uh, There's nothing, again, the real estate market was and still is very healthy in terms of those values and with inventory limited, not just from a local level. Inventory is low nationally. We didn't have home builders jump in and build thousands and thousands of units, except for in very small pockets of the country. Uh, You see, see that in the southeast, you see that in the Southwest, you know, Arizona, Vegas, and some areas. But for the most part, builders were not eager to go in and you know build these huge spec subdivisions or these gigantic, you know, um, condo projects where you've seen a lot more rental builds over the last five years. So that lack of inventory has you know helped keep values up. And I, I think that's going to continue and be the trend, at least for the near future. So I think the next big trend, if we want to call it that, is still looking at uh, the next 10 years and what happens to baby boomers. And if there is one part of the market that's going to be affected by this pandemic, I think that's going to be it. If you know, I just spoke with my dad the other day, and he's a 75-year-old man who was trying to plan the next 10 or 15 years of his life and my my mom's life. Why would they want to even consider going into some type of nursing or some you know type of assisted living facility based on what's going on right now? So I, I do think that this is going to force a lot of 70 to 80 year olds who are in their homes to want to stay in their homes longer, which was already sort of a problem from a real estate perspective. But there is, you know, a larger percentage of property that's locked up by baby boomers than is owned by any other. I mean, it's not even close how much property they own compared to any other age group. So if I'm trying to predict what's going to happen, I I think that that's the part of the market that's going to loosen up at some point over the next five to 10 years. And it's also what you're talking about in terms of that HGTV mentality. So while my mom and dad think that their property is worth a million dollars, um, you know, even though the you know exact same property just sold next door to them for four hundred thousand and they just can't wrap their heads around, you know, the fact that they put in their pretty countertops, that they're not gonna get a million dollars for their home. I, I think that's a gap that's gonna have to be bridged. And I think that's gonna probably be where the opportunity is in terms of buying a property and then fixing it up um, because boomers are not going to for the most part be in a position to do that before they sell i think another reason why we might see a trend back to fixing places up is we're moving so fast before there wasn't one single free minute to go pick out a countertop or a door pull because i had to check 70 social media sites i'm running to my next appointment I can't do enough things at the same exact time overlapping one another. And now I'm actually able to sit down and look at some polls and pick the one that I want. So I do think if, if, we, if things stay slow, I think it will actually help us all appreciate again a really nice remodel. 100%.
0: Even myself. Being a broker, you guys know it's crazy. Real estate industry is crazy. But am I going to tackle trying to paint my bathroom vanity? Absolutely. Do I have to? No, but we have the time now. And we have time to watch YouTube videos and more people are posting on YouTube and how to do things and we're talking more openly about everyone was so afraid of giving away their trade secrets. And now it's, who cares? We're all in this together. You want to learn how to paint your bathroom vanity? Like, let's do it. Let's do it together. Let's, you know, change, change our homes. And yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see, especially because a lot of the people in my generation, we didn't really know how to do anything. And now we have the time. Okay, let's take a second. How do we change out this light fixture? How do we properly paint something? So it's, We always say this, but there is some good things happening out of all of this. And I think that's a really, I think that's a really cool one. Because I I was starting to worry, are we going to be able to live on our own without our folks? Yeah. Thank God
1: for YouTube, right? (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Yeah. Our household has seen a big uptick in uh, learning real life skills. My kids have learned how to paint, lay mulch, pump up bicycle tires, cut grass. So uh, it's great to have have those real-life skills kicking in.
0: Well, and it's probably great to have some extra help around the house. Oh, yeah. Free labor. (laughs) For sure. How are things looking from your perspective? You know, being around so many different brokers, you always have a really good pulse on things. How are you feeling about the market in general?
1: You know, I, I think I would have to use the word bipolar just to be straight up with. I hear a lot of great stories. I hear a lot of not so great stories, you know, some sellers are doing great, some aren't. Some buyers found a great place, some didn't. I think there are as many good stories as there are bad stories. So, you know, painting this picture that the that everything's really fine and going to be fine, I, I don't think is responsible. Um, so while I think it's, it's hopeful, I think the market's hopeful. I see a lot of brokers that are hopeful and, you know, really just outright optimistic. There is a segment that we have to pay attention to and that we have to be aware of. And, you know, also from the human side, you know, we have to know that everyone's processing this differently, whether it be a a broker or a client, and we just need to be there to support people and just know that everyone's not handling this perfectly. Yeah, I mean, I talk to probably a dozen brokers a day, at least, and I make a point on any given day of trying to reach out to a couple that I haven't maybe talked to in a few weeks. And a lot of it's just checking in with people from a human standpoint, not even from a real estate standpoint. And, you know, I'm I'm dealing with a lot of refinances right now, too, where I'm talking to buyers, borrowers that I haven't talked to in a couple of years. And you get everything from, you know, I'm a lucky person in that I can do my job from home and I can still make money. And I talk to, you know, a good deal of people who are in that situation and who feel lucky and understand that they're lucky and they're privileged to do that. But not everybody is. Um, I've got a lot of clients that have taken anywhere from 20% to 50% pay cuts. I've got people that are on quote unquote furlough, but they're really just waiting for a layoff. Um, I've got, I've got clients that, you know, mechanics at United Airlines who are, you know, down to 20 hours a week and they fully expect they're going to get laid off. So, um, and that may be just the husband or the wife or, you know, of the person that you're talking to and maybe not exactly the person you're talking to, but that's also going on in their homes. And everybody is, you know, afraid for their parents and, and you know, for whatever else is going on. So it, it's been interesting to have those human contacts with people and to remember that everybody is experiencing this different and it, it is going to shape how we all feel about, you know, anytime we're out in public for the next, you know, six months, twelve months, eighteen months, I don't know, uh, they keep moving the goalposts on us, which I think is what is making this especially hard for people from, you know, the mental health standpoint. So we have to remember that as we do our jobs, um, whether it's, you know, managing those brokers or whether it's managing those buyers or whether it's just trying to understand that maybe the way somebody's coming at you on any given day isn't normal and how they would do that. And uh, just trying to get through the moment sometimes. That was well said
0: is a really good way to put it. And it is interesting. We're all going through the same thing, but it's affecting us all so differently. And it's not just the people here. You know, I do a lot of relocation and... There's still people moving to Chicago, but there's people that they're no longer able to move to Chicago, and there's so many different fears of, are people going to leave Chicago? Are we going to be able to sustain all of this? What is Chicago going to look like after this? And I'm definitely hopeful, but at the same time, you do have to realize everything is slower just across the board, and this is just the beginning of it, right? But you have to continue to be hopeful because I am still seeing people, they have have their jobs. I'm moving at least a few people every month here to Chicago, even with people pushing back their start dates. So that gives me a lot of hope. But, you know, other things like I know a guy, he worked at a luggage store. That's just a tough company to to be with right now. And what do you say and what do you do? And he really wanted to move out of his apartment and now he can't. And it's hard. It's really hard.
1: Well, that's from a consumer confidence standpoint. I think that's that's going to be really important moving forward. I think that might be the hardest thing from an economic standpoint to get over for the next year or two years. Cause I mean, even if you're employed right now and you're doing well and you're putting money in the bank, are you looking at doing that kitchen remodel this year? Probably not. Are you looking at even doing that kitchen remodel next year? You're probably not. You're, you're more likely saying, well, I'm going to wait till next spring and see how things feel then. So, you know, that's the engine that runs this country, right? Is that I'm going to go to Home Depot and I'm going to spend some money or I'm going to order my appliances from apps and I'm going to spend some money and I'm going to hire general contractors to come into my home to do work. And I I think that might, you know, aside from just the real estate perspective, we're just talking about transactional in in terms of real estate. But when we're talking about all of those, you know, those individual things, those plans that we all have for our properties, for our futures, I I think that's going to be interesting to see how quickly that that we have a recovery there, because that's going to be really important for everybody. My spending money on something is affecting everybody else, and so on and so forth down that chain.
0: When you have all these people in Streeterville, where their high rises are completely locked up, contractors can't get in, yet they want to update their spaces. So once that opens up. I have a client, he's just waiting. He's just waiting for the building to let his contractors in, but they can't spend their money to do anything, but he wants to do it and he's just one guy out of thousands. So, who knows, you know? I I think that just sums it up. Who knows?
1: Yeah, I agree. You you made a comment about, you know, Chicago and being hopeful. You know, geographically we're in the most amazing place you can be in, in the center of the country and we're such a hub for distribution. We're definitely an affordable tech hub. We have so many things going for us that even despite this, you know, we're we're, our infrastructure is so important to the whole country. I think Chicago is always going to be in a good spot once we get our state economy fixed.
0: Well, and a lot of my relocation clients, they're recent graduates or they're younger and they have nothing to lose and they're still wanting to come here. So... There's a lot of people. They're ready to make moves. They're ready to do something for themselves. They want to be in Chicago, and they could really be what brings us out of all of this. Side note, I just think a ton of younger people are going to start becoming brokers. That's just my opinion. Because now that you don't have to go to college, who cares? Become a broker. Our industry is doing okay.
1: Oh, man. I don't know. Maybe. Well, you know how hard it is to start. I mean, it's not, not an easy job.
0: No, but that's that's the whole point. Who cares? They don't have anything to lose. You know, college isn't going to really be an option for a lot of people. School's no longer in session for a lot of people. A lot of people won't be able to afford college now. So what are your options? So we've grown up in this generation where entrepreneurship is so fascinating and something a lot of us grew up thinking that we wanted to do. You know, now you can be a YouTube star. Now you can do this. Now you can do that. And... A lot of people are going to take a step back out of real estate, I think. And so why not these young, hungry people who want to make something of themselves and to do something? And I mean, hey, I was 22 when I got in this industry and I got in not at the best time, like 2013, and I'm still here and somehow surviving these waters. So if there's a kid out there that wants to do this and he wants to try to make it for themselves, you better watch out. That's all I'm saying. Personally, I
1: think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity in real estate. And that, that goes for the mortgage side of it, too. Um, I, one of the things that happened during the recession 10 years ago, we all constantly come back to this um, when we have discussions about real estate right now. But there were so many barriers put into place in terms of getting into our uh, industry, whether that be licensing, whether that be um, just trying to get your, your feet wet and get your first couple deals done. But there is a tremendous amount of opportunity, whether you're in a realtor or you're, whether you're in the mortgage industry right now. Um, so many of our, our systems have gone virtual and online, but what people crave is human contact. And, and this is the single biggest purchase anybody makes in their lifetime. Is, and whether that's the $200,000 starter home or the $1 million home, people crave human beings to interact with and to manage these transactions. and. There's always going to be opportunity here, so I I would not discredit that there will be young people joining our industry. Certainly, if they want to get into the mortgage industry, have them give me a call. I, I can use all the help I can get right now.
0: Well, and before all of this happened, we used to have recent graduates come to some of our seminars, just trying to figure out, okay, you know, what is house hacking? What should I be doing? They'd come up to me afterwards, and oh my gosh, this is this is amazing. This is what I want to do. And a lot of them, they've either, maybe not a lot, but there's enough of them. You know, I saved up money during college. I wanted to house hack. Okay, well, maybe they're finally going to be able to buy something in the next year or two because they're living with mom and dad. Kids that maybe worked all throughout high school, they have this money and they've saved up, saved it up and maybe they want to do something with it. So I wouldn't write them off.
1: You know, I would. I don't think that's specific to a generation. I think that sales is very, very difficult. And I think Rick would agree with this and you would as well. You know, you, you see people who get into sales who you think are going to be the smartest sales salespeople on the planet and a year out they're you know, they peter out and they get out of the business. And then you see people who are like, oh my God, that person's so flaky. They're never going to get any. And then they turn out to be the $100 million producer. It happens every day in our industry because there is no ceiling that's set in real estate. You can do as much business as you want to or you're able to do, but sales is hard. And that's why it's difficult to manage salespeople because you have to do the same thing over and over and over again until you get it right and then you develop your own systems. And, you know, you can have as many cheerleaders as you want, as many managers as you want, but it still comes down to the individual salesperson every day of the week. And the fast salespeople are generally the ones that ask the least amount of handholding, who go out and they make decisions for themselves. They get it wrong. They fix it next time and they go out and they do it again and they do it a little bit better.
0: You know what they also do? They hang in there. And that's the one piece of advice that I always tell everyone. If you can last and if you can hold on, you're making it way further than most of the people because most of the people won't.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. And they do what you did when you first got in the business. You innovate. You see that no one else is doing something and you create something that no one else has done. And then five years later, everyone wants to do exactly what you've been doing all along.
0: Very true. And, you know, these are people, they're not afraid of being on camera. They're used to it. They've done it their whole lives. And I'm guessing they won't be afraid to show off their properties or show off their knowledge and what they know. So I'm actually really excited. What are brokers doing that you think will help move everything forward?
1: You know, one of the most important things they're doing is creating systems in this new environment. So if they are going to have a virtual showing, you know, there's a system to it, how it gets created. Their, where it's going to be posted, if they're doing in-person showings, here are the rules, masks, gloves. They're, they're, I appreciate so much how agents are literally creating their own blueprint for how to get through this and then sticking to it because there is no advice to be given at a time when no one's done it before. So I was just literally amazed at how quickly people rallied it came up with bright new ideas, and all of a sudden, we're at the next stage. And it wasn't that long. I mean, it was 30 to 45 days of figuring it out, and we're, we're moving on. And you literally saw the market, stop for a second, figure it out, and once it did, now we're moving on. So I guess the biggest thing I could see brokers doing is, you know, having innovation and being able to uh, just to systematize it totally agree. We had uh, Sarah Chambers on from an appraisal company last week, and she gave a piece of advice that I've worked into my speech. And I love learning stuff like this from people and then completely stealing it and sounding like the expert. But one of the things she said that their uh, appraisers are doing is they're calling ahead if they have to get into a unit and they're asking either the agent or the owner of the property to literally open every single door on the property, including closets, to turn on every single light switch, And she said it's cutting their time by 10 to 15 minutes per appointment because now they come in with gloves and masks, but they don't have to touch anything. It minimizes everything. Um, And then, you know, whoever's showing the property, be it the the owner or the broker, they feel safer too. So I've worked that into every discussion I've had. And, you know, I'm trying to pick up things like this as we talk to industry professionals that have changed their routines because I think it's going to be really important moving forward this year.
0: So, Rick, you always have this great attitude and perspective on things. And earlier this week, I called you while I was feeling kind of down myself. And when we chatted, instead of giving me the stay positive spiel, you were really real with me and just told me, you know, it's okay to have bad days. And it was such a light bulb moment for me. And it's kind of carried me through this entire week. I would love it if you would share a little more on how you're getting through all of this yourself and, you know, tell me more about this bad day policy.
1: Well, for me, there's nothing more irritating than being around someone that's having a bad day and they're trying to fake it. They're trying to make it sound like everything's going to be okay. So one of the biggest things I've done for myself is if I'm really going to recharge and I'm really going to get back on track and I'm having a bad day, I'm all in. I am not, I'm done with my email. I'm done with my phone calls. I'm actually just need to leave it all behind And I need to announce to the people around me that I'm having a bad day because then everyone knows they don't need to make me feel better. You just need to leave me alone. And I think that everybody, when they're having a bad day, needs to just go there. Like, you don't need to make me feel better. You don't have to fix my problems. I'm having a bad day. I'm going to go disappear. I'm going to recharge my mental state. And when I come back, I'm ready to be funny again. But until then, I'm not going to be with you. So, you know, you had mentioned that, yeah, you know, like eventually life gets to everybody. And when you're having a bad day, you don't need to work out. You don't need to eat healthy. You don't need to do anything. You need to do whatever is going to make you feel the best at that moment in time. And I'm a firm believer in that. And I live by that. My family lives by that. And I'm just, uh I don't know, I can't be any more adamant that if you're having a bad day, just own it.
0: What food has really gotten you through this then? If we're, uh, you know, I'm an eater when I'm upset. <laughs> a lot of people are. So what have you guys been eating? Any takeout?
1: Yeah, I'll do sushi from Sushi Sun down on Grand. I mean, the sushi is just amazing. Or I'll just eat a giant Mexican dinner. Just the fattest, the fatty Mexican loving it all. Awesome.
0: How about you, Joe? What have you gotten this week?
1: You no, know, it's funny. Um, the bad day this week was my 10-year-old. She was, and I think it's as important to take care of those around us when they're having a bad day as it is to admit that you're having your own bad day. Uh, She was having a bad week, and, you know, just kind of feeling this being trapped in the e-school and everything else. And I feel like at times the only way to, um, you know, we're all, you know, like, oh, let's have ice cream, whatever. But even, you know, we get sick of all of that. And so yesterday we drove to her friend's house and they had sort of a, you know, distancing play date. And then we went by an old, our, old neighbors and we did sort of the same thing there. And it was just like flipping a switch. She's a different person last night. She's a different person today. So one of the things I would say, you know, to Rick and you, you're allowed to have a bad day, be there for the other people that are having bad days too. And sometimes it's just about changing up that routine and trying to find something for that person that maybe they forgot about, you know, kind of steer them in a different direction. What have we been doing for food? I, you know, I think we've done our, our part to keep the Chicago economy rolling We had Frontera Grill for Mother's Day on Saturday, which was, you know, Rick Bayless out of this world. And then on Sunday, we did a lettuce. uh, It's called, um, I think it's Crab Shack. It's right next to Summer House on Halstead, Salivara. So it's another lettuce place right next to that. And they did two pounds of crab leg, prime burgers, some crazy Mother's Day thing, because my wife's a freak for crab legs. And that was outstanding. So, um, yeah, we've, we've been pouring our you know money into the local economy wherever we can, I guess.
0: Yeah, we definitely went for some big star, finally. <laughs> we caved. Is the one by Wrigley
1: open, Courtney?
0: Yeah, so both the Wicker Park and the Wrigleyville locations opened. And yeah, that day that I had a bad day, I did as Rick does and just got some good old fatty Mexican food and it was amazing. So good. Their fish tacos are superb. Have you guys been drinking anything good this week?
1: I actually went to um, Half Acre yesterday and picked up some Tome and uh, their, I think it's Phaser is their their summer lager. And uh, the Tome, I'm not a big hazy IPA guy, but uh, actually Julie likes those more than I do, but it was really good. I had had one uh, last night.
0: I tried what Steve recommended a few weeks ago, the Maplewood Brewery out in Logan Square. They have a Chicago pilsner named the Pulaski Pils, and holy crap, it was like one of the best pilsners I've ever had. Very clean, not hoppy. I kind of hate how good it was. It was that good. I still haven't stopped thinking about it. Rick, you are our bourbon whiskey man. What have you had?
1: Oh, my God. Yes. You know, I'll take a a glass of Cobalt Grain is just the best. Just smelling it puts a smile on my face. Pour some in a cup with one ice cube, and that's it. Life is perfect. I'm good.
0: Well, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Sip and Learn. Rick, I know I'll be talking to you soon, and I love doing this with the both of you. Really feels like the old days of just hanging out in the office. And cheers, guys! Cheers!